0: Reported live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you Christie.
1: Welcome to episode forty-one of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christie. Hello, Kim. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, YouTube, and SoundCloud, and our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, last week was a bit nutty. How are you doing? (laughs) <laughs> I'm good, Cam.
2: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, I've, I've, I did something new this winter Cameron, mm-hmm. it's something I've never, ever done before. And that is for the very first time I'm trying to embrace the cold. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm, That's I'm, I'm doing everything I can. And I, and I think it's largely because I have no choice <laughs> because there's literally nothing else for me to do short of uh, going for walks and enjoying the the great outdoors. So, you know, I, I bought myself a nice hat, cozy hat, proper gloves. I've got grown-up snow pants <laughs> and, uh, and proper winter boots. And for whatever reason, I just never got around to doing that in all of the years that I've lived here in, in cold, cold Ontario. Um, and you know what? It's actually really quite lovely. Today was a cold, crisp but really sunny day. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I understand I'm stating the obvious here, but when you're appropriately dressed, it can be really pleasant.
1: You know, I outside in the cold. I think most of the world probably thinks Canadians naturally embrace the cold. Uh, not something that we pick up in our 40s. But, uh, you know, I, I will say sometimes I do miss it because in Hong Kong, I mean, if it goes down to like 12 Celsius or 13 Celsius, we get cold weather warnings and seniors are told to stay inside because of the cold and you know, things like that. So it's, it is relative. Like we don't get that kind of crisp, cold air. And you know, in before times when we used to travel, um, it was nice being back in, in countries or places that had winter and being there and sort of experiencing that. But I don't think I'd want to, I'd want to experience it for very long. It's nice as a novelty. Like I enjoy it. Uh, and it brings back fond memories, but, um, yeah, I've, I've become a warm weather person. I fear.
2: I wouldn't fear it. I think that's, <laughs> embrace it, my friend. I think you've made the right call. You've made the right, the, the call that most human beings on planet earth have decided to make, um, you know, which is to, live in more temperate warm
1: climate. Yes. and yes.
2: you know hey look as you know it's it is absolutely wonderful weather here the majority of the year but for those um those few months of cold cold winter that we get um yeah i don't know it's it, I'm, I'm having a a new lease on this whole cold thing just bundle up appropriately and enjoy that crisp sunny weather it's really really nice
0: Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com That's all one word. Ask us at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PR Law Pod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D.
1: You know, you and one of the big stories from last week was GameStop, and it was everywhere. Uh, people were talking about that, and we're actually going to get into that subject uh, when we talk a little bit of PR coming up. But first, let's dig into the legal side. I understand you've got quite the announcement that happened this week.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know
1: if it's called it an announcement. announcement. Yeah.
2: I thought I thought this was kind of kind of interesting. So. I wanted to talk about a decision of um the Ontario Superior Court here, Cameron. Now, mm-hmm. you know, I normally I don't get into this sort of thing, but uh, this case resonated with me, and i I shared a post about it on LinkedIn, and I had enough feedback on it that occurred to me that perhaps it'd be something that we should chat about on the show. So, you know the the case sort of speaks to the difficulties, the legal profession, but frankly, all, all professions and what they're dealing with right now. So I'll, I'll give you a, just sort of the and Notes version of, of the case. So this was a, a landlord and commercial tenant dispute at a, a shopping center here in, in, in Ottawa, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Um, and the landlord entered into a lease with a call center that had a conditional period expiring on, on February 1st. Entered into this, this agreement with them in, in January. Okay. Now, the Hudson's Bay Company, I know you know the Hudson's Bay Company. I do. You know, it's one of those sort of great brands, uh, Canadian brands, that has actually made its way around the world. So the Hudson's Bay Company here, Cam, they were the commercial tenant. And they objected to the landlord leasing this huge footprint of the mall to a call center. And this huge footprint in the mall was previously occupied by Sears, another company I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, But of course, Sears has since gone bankrupt and Hudson's Bay was angry about the landlord leasing this huge space to a call center because they thought that it would diminish the overall quality of the retail space.
1: Yeah, which I'm sure it would
2: naturally litigation ensues and on January 19th, the, the landlord advises the court that, you know, it's entered into this agreement with this call center and has this sort of this lease sort of hanging in the balance here, which expires on February 1 if it's not sort of solidified. So given the timeline, the court set a January 29 hearing day. Well, counsel for Hudson's Bay, it turns out, um, was scheduled in court on another matter that day. So counsel argued that even you know if if they weren't that really we're talking about a 12 day period and it wasn't an adequate enough time to to prepare so they basically were saying you know we need we need to have this this adjourned and counsel for the landlord this was when they took the position that no this was a serious issue it was urgent and it needed to be dealt with immediately and that if counsel wasn't available to attend on the date of the hearing then they should attend court on the weekend Mm -hmm. And that's when something really, really interesting happened. So counsel for Hudson's Bay um, effectively, you know, he had this to say, said that young lawyers who have children at home during the week and have to now supply them with the curriculum and feed and clothe and entertain them and practice law and do their jobs, that asking them to give up their weekends to do litigation work is very difficult. And that's not something that I'm prepared to do. Mm. Now, what do you think what do you think the judge's response to that was?
1: I don't know because that seems like something that should be irrelevant to the proceedings. But you tell me, Ewan.
2: Well, and that's just it. That's just it. You would think that the court would mm-hmm. say, "Well, hey, tough luck. this is the job you've signed up for, and this is what the job entails. But that's not what happened. So Justice Myers, took the position that there was no objective urgency justifying proceeding on the Saturday. And Justice Myers had this to say, the court takes very seriously issues of health and wellness of practitioners, members of the judiciary, and court staff during the pandemic in particular. While lawyers in the courts are in a service business, there has to be a break applied to service providers' willingness to compete themselves or their juniors into unhealthy
1: states in the
2: ordinary course of business.
1: Mm. So what do you think about that? So in other words, the court is saying, no, this isn't urgent enough to have on a Saturday. People are busy. People have kids. People are working from home. People are, like you say, schooling their own kids at home these days, in addition to doing their jobs. And so the justice was unwilling to do this on a Saturday. What's the significance of this, Ewan? Because it seems like something quite, quite, quite big in terms of setting a bit of a precedent.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, Justice Myers went on to say briefly, you know, recognizing that young counsel and staff may have other responsibilities or just need downtime does not impair access to justice, provided that everyone understands the need to make personal sacrifices when truly urgent circumstances arise. So the idea being, Look, if we are dealing with an urgent matter, and and quite often, Cam, when something gets before a judge, it is. It's incredibly urgent. Um, But, you know, I don't know that anybody can try and argue that a simple landlord-tenant dispute in a commercial setting is a life-and-death situation that would justify that kind of urgency. So what does it mean in the broader scope? Well, I think it's a really big deal because the court is effectively chiming in and acknowledging that you know what? Things aren't exactly normal right now. This is not status quo. And everybody is going to have to make accommodations that they wouldn't otherwise necessarily have to make. And that's not specific to the legal profession. And that's what I find really interesting about the decision that effectively you could take this language. And really, I think it's something that employers, employees in any profession can look to. In that we need to be more accommodating when we're scheduling deadlines, when we're creating expectations for employees um, in terms of what is reasonable under the circumstances. And like so many things can in law, this is really an issue of communication. So it's critical, again, employers, talk to your employees. If you're establishing deadlines, speak to them. Find out if those are manageable given whatever else they happen to be dealing with. Um, be it child care demands, educational demands for, for those parents who are having to educate their children at home right now because schools are closed, communicate with them. And then employees, you know, this is a two-way street, Kim. So employees, you have a duty and an obligation as well to speak to your employer if if those expectations, if you know they aren't going to be met. If you need accommodation, have a conversation, sit down, have that discussion. I mean, sit down, of course, by... Over Zoom, I guess, or a
1: phone call—not in a traditional sense—but communicate that message. You know what I find interesting about this, Ewan, is the fact that, like, we're almost a year into the pandemic, and at, at least in in North America, because it really hit there in March, I guess, so eleven months ago. And and I feel like at that time there was more leeway given to people in terms of deadlines and delays and things like that, because it was still relatively novel. Whereas now we're 11 months in, I do feel like uh, patience has frayed somewhat, um, and there are louder parts of the economy clamoring to get things back to normal and let's get this show on the road, let's get moving, which obviously is is difficult in the in the current climate, considering the number of cases and the status of COVID-19 at the moment. But but it does interest me that now there is this sort of accommodation made when we are so far into it, because I do feel like this is something that could have been used before now. And I guess it's better late than never. But but still, the timing seems a bit uh, a bit strange.
2: Well, you know, and I mean, the the lawyer who is acting for HSBC, um, sorry, not HSBC, Hudson's Bay Company. um, Yeah, I I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Why? Why now? Well, again, I think it was really, really bold. Um, now, granted, obviously it was in the interests of, of his client, um, but I thought it was really, really bold to take that position to say, no, you know what? I'm not going to agree to appearing on a Saturday um, when I know full well that the preparation and getting everything in order for that appearance is going to fall on the junior council that are not in a position to be putting in that kind of time right now on the weekend, mm-hmm. um, I thought it was just incredibly brave and bold and forward-thinking, and really completely removed from what we typically see in the legal profession. Cam, which is you know if 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 a client calls or a client needs something, you know, it's you jump, it's just right away. You got it. You got to do it because if you don't do it, somebody else will. Mm-hmm. So again, I can't underscore how brave it was of a counsel to take that kind of position. And then for a judge to effectively, um, take the position as well that, yeah, the courts have to be accommodating in this regard right now, because this is not normal. And one of the, one of the comments that council made was, you know, we're 10 months in um, it's probably going to be another 10 months before there's going to be any real uh, respite for some of these junior lawyers. And we need to do more as a profession. And I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there is the bigger issue here, which is just sort of this work culture, right? I mean, I think it is, especially in your profession, Ewan, um, but in others as well, where there is an expectation that you'll put everything else aside to, to get your work done and um, you know, if if that changes or even softens even just a little bit, even just a few percent, I think it might be beneficial. Um, because you know, I, I will say one thing: you and like I, I, there are people out there that work nonstop, and I think you you do, I do, you know, work very long hours. Um, but some people do do that as a as a badge of honor. It's something they expect to be looked up to for. And I think there's something sort of gross about that at, at a very basic level. And um, it's not something that we should look up to. And I think we should create these these spaces where people can sort of have a better work-life balance as well, just in general.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And I'll give you a, a little anecdote here just to, to close off, Cam. While my, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, um, I was at an examination for discovery. So, you know, this is where you sit across from. Opposing counsel and their client, and you have you know sort of the better part of a day to um, ask that that individual, that plaintiff or that defendant, uh, any any questions related to the litigation. And uh, opposing counsel, somehow the, the the topic of of my my wife being pregnant uh, with our daughter came up, and he said to me, and he was a quite quite a senior partner, very very well respected litigator, and he said, oh well. I remember the day that my child was born. I was in an examination for discovery and um, my wife called and I said, sorry, uh, I'm busy. <laughs> and I remember, I remember thinking that in that, I mean, it just, it so wholeheartedly spoke to a whole host of things. One, you know, just an issue that's just sort of fundamentally wrong with, with the legal profession to that generational gap in terms of what expectations were of men at that time relative to now, but that also how still there is that stigma. And we've talked about this before, Cam, that idea that, you know, the, the duty of the father of, 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 of the man in the relationship is no, I mean, you continue to go to work. You certainly don't take a a paternity uh, leave. I mean, that's, that's what women do. Um, And again, as we've seen in the pandemic, what happens is that those child care requirements and all of that, all of the stuff that goes with that, it's being disproportionately carried by women. And they're the ones who are suffering. They're the ones who are not going back to the workforce to the extent that men are going back. And they continue to carry that burden. So, you know, uh, as much as things have changed, you know, a lot of stuff still stays the same.
1: Well, and, you know, this is different in different markets, too. You talk about paternity leave. I mean, in Hong Kong, that's five days. Um, You know, so so it's still got a long way to go, I think, in in many places. But, you know, you mentioned that litigator, you and recalling when his child was born, like that should be something he is ashamed to say publicly. Like that's we have to get to that point where if you're putting aside major life achievements or major life milestones like births and deaths and weddings for work, that that should be shameful. And um, I really do think we have to eventually get to that point.
0: Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRandLawPodcast.com. That's PRandLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out.
1: So some uh, some terms were were, were bandied around uh, this past week. Things like GameStop and Wall Street bets and Reddit and short selling, and all of these things. And and I am guessing that listeners to this podcast probably have a good idea uh, what those things are. But before I get into that, you and I mean, did you follow this last week? Are you sort of up to date with what's happened, or is it something that happened in the background and seems a little bit chaotic and confusing?
2: No, I I was I I actually followed this story quite closely. I found it fascinating and uh, learning about the short squeeze, Mm -hmm. which uh, I wasn't too familiar with. And um, and also, you know, I think the best thing that came out of this, Cameron, is that Jon Stewart is now on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) all because of this whole debacle. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to listen to you jump into this.
1: Well, yeah, I'm going to do a, a quick rundown on it, too, um, because just just so everybody is clear sort of what, what these things are. But on the PR side of it, actually, there's so many things in here. I mean, we could talk for hours um, about the different angles and the different organizations involved and how they handled it. So obviously, we don't have time to get into all of that. So I'm going to look specifically at Robin Hood. And I guess you're familiar with Robin Hood, you, and I actually use it, uh, don't tell anyone that because <laughs> I am in Hong Kong and I'm not American. Uh, and it is meant for for people living in the United States. But I tested it out as it's a, it's a, it's a popular app. It has kind of gamified uh, investing. It's a very sleek app. Um, it looks great. It's got all of the proper, you know, iPhone and Android widgets and, you know, things like that. So they do a good technologically. So they've brought in, uh, you know, millions of new kind of millennial uh, investors. But they ran into some serious trouble um, this week. Yeah. Yeah. Just to jump in
2: quickly, Cam, I just remembered we talked about Robin Hood, if you recall, on a show way, way back when. So we'll put a, a link in the show notes to that episode because we we give a lot we of did. really, really good background on sort of uh, Robin Hood and, and their emergence and their business model um, that might be of some use to our listeners.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I, the first thing I want to just talk about is, is short selling, because what happened last week really was hedge funds took out a short position on GameStop and a few other stocks and People in a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets ended up putting the squeeze on these short sellers. So what does all of that mean? Um, so James Surowiecki was he writes the, the Money Talks newsletter uh, at a publication called Marker, and he was on the On the Media podcast slash radio show uh, on WNYC. So here's basically what short selling is. I thought his definition of it was, uh, was quite apt.
3: So the vast majority of investors, the vast amount of money that's in the stock market is betting that stocks will rise. Short sellers do the opposite. They bet that stocks will fall. So they try to identify companies where the business is bad or where they think the stock price has gotten totally out of control. They borrow shares from someone who actually owns the stock and then they sell them. Their hope is that the stock price will fall. Then they can buy back the shares at a lower price and return them to the person they borrowed them from. Okay, so that seems straightforward enough. Here's an example. The ideal trade would be you short the stock at 20, it drops to 10, you buy back the shares and you know you've made basically $10 a share. The danger for short sellers is that in theory their losses are unlimited. If you buy GameStop at $5 a share, the most you can lose is $5 a share, right? I mean, it could go to zero and you would lose $5 a share. If you short GameStop, as a lot of shorts did, if you short it at $20 a share and it goes to $290 a share, which is where GameStop was a few minutes ago, and you hold on to your short that whole time, you've just lost $270 a share. So you can see why this gets
1: very dangerous playing this game. And and you and I have to say, like, I have shorted stocks before and I can tell you uh, there is some anxiety that goes with it for that reason. You know, if you buy a yeah, stock, I
2: would, I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, if you buy a stock, he's right. You, you can lose what you've put into it. But on, on a short sale, your losses are infinite. They really are potentially infinite. So it, it's a dangerous game to play. But a lot do it and you can make a lot of money doing it because there are obviously stocks out there that are overpriced. And if you can pick them out, um, you can do do quite, quite well. Um, but this has introduced sort of another wrinkle to the market. So anyway, in brief, so the large funds had bet against GameStop and other stops, Reddit as this community on there, Reddit being a popular sort of bulletin board service. They've got uh, chat rooms for almost everything you could possibly imagine, uh, including one called Wall Street Bets. And so there were some sort of chats in those rooms. So I want to go through a bit of the chronology here about what happened. So January 11th. So we're going back a few weeks now. There was a belief, there were some executive changes at GameStop and a belief that the company would kind of turn things around and that they were going to get on the right track. Uh, they got some new leadership who were going to try and successfully move the business from sort of bricks-and-mortar retail stores into more sort of online uh, digital stores. But there were, you know, it was common knowledge that there were some funds that were betting against the company. And that was discussed uh, in a Reddit thread, which had started on January 11th. So by January 19th, uh, there's a short-selling firm called Citron Research. Again, I'm very familiar with these guys. They operate in Hong Kong as well. And they tweeted that GameStop buyers are the suckers at this poker game. And that enraged people on Reddit. And that was a key triggering point. And they ended up buying GameStop en masse after that tweet. And interestingly enough, you and Citron Research then exited the short-selling game entirely. So they were doing a lot of it. Now they're out of the business entirely. So this backfired for them. On January 22nd, there were so many transactions in GameStop that the stock was halted four times during trading because of volatility. So the stock, uh, the stock exchanges have what are called circuit breakers. In Hong Kong, it's called a volatility control mechanism. Basically, they're triggered when there's really extreme volatility, it brings in like a cooling off period uh, of a few minutes. And you know, these rules are kind of different in different markets. But anyway, it happened four times to GameStop. Uh, on that day. But people kept buying. So on the 22nd, it, it jumped 51%, closed at record high. In the days that followed, and so this is now last week, Ewan, uh, it was halted nine times last Monday, five times on Tuesday. Uh, Wall Street Bets hit 5.2 million subscribers in that Reddit chat room, uh, and it even went offline for a few hours uh, to let moderators sort of catch up with all of the content uh, that was coming in there. So this takes us really to, to the heart of the issue, which was towards the end of last week. And that was January 28th where Robin hood and other brokers announced that they would restrict trading in GameStop, restrict buying GameStop. And this triggered a lot of anger, uh, on social media and Reddit and many other places.
2: Now here, here's the thing, Cam,
1: I'm not saying I agree with what, uh, Robin Hood
2: did here or any other platform for that matter. But again, if they're a private company, uh, I you know I'd love to sit down and read the terms and conditions of of the app in terms of what they're permitted and not permitted to do, and whether or not they have the discretion to effectively restrict trading because I suspect there's got to be something somewhere in the fine print that says, hey, Should, you know, a crazy scenario such as this present itself as unprecedented as it may be, uh, we have the discretion to sort of, you know, take the bull by the reins here or bull by the horns and mix metaphors and uh, and and shut it down.
1: Well, I mean, do they not? I mean, the issue is more around securities law. So it's illegal to manipulate the market. And there are many who believe when you shut off trading in certain stocks that you are manipulating the market. So this is what Robinhood said when they put out their statement and we can go over this in a second but, but I'm going to read I'm going to read the whole statement but a couple of paragraphs here when they put this announcement out on January 28th they said this past year we've seen the financial markets become a voice for the voiceless we've seen a new generation of people come into the markets sparking conversations about what it means to be an investor. Our customers have shown the world that investing is for everyone, not just institutional investors and hedge funds. Amid this week's extraordinary circumstances in the market, we made a tough decision today to temporarily limit buying for certain securities. As a brokerage firm, we have many financial requirements, including SEC, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission, net capital obligations and clearinghouse deposits. Some of these requirements fluctuate based on volatility in the markets and can be substantial in the current environment. These requirements exist to protect investors and the markets, and we take our responsibilities to comply with them seriously, including through the measures that we've taken today. Now I'm going to skip to the end of this statement. They they get into the weeds a little bit more, but towards the end, this is what it says. Starting tomorrow, we plan to allow limited buys of these securities. We'll continue to monitor the situation and may make adjustments as needed. To be clear, this was a risk management decision and was not made on the direction of the market makers we root to. We stand in support of our customers and the freedom of retail investors to shape their own financial future. Democratizing finance has been our guiding star since our earliest days, we will continue to build products and give more people, not fewer, access to our financial system.
2: Right. So they're going to democratize, but they're going to control when and what you can buy.
1: Precisely. Precisely. Now, one thing I didn't mention off the top here is the undercurrent of all of this. And I think undercurrent of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and undercurrent of um, you know a lot of social movements at, at the moment is feeling that, you know, either the economy or politics or whatever is rigged in favor of the big and the powerful players. And so the reason they wanted to sort of target these hedge funds is to kind of teach them a lesson or show that the little guy does have some power. And Robinhood since it launched has sided with this group of people. You know, they market themselves as, look, we're giving you the same access. You can do the same things that big fancy hedge funds can do or, or investment bankers or whomever it might be. And that's why that statement and this restriction really angered people. That is one of the key reasons because they felt that Robinhood was turning their back on the very people they claimed to be trying to, you know, bring into the market by restricting because the hedge funds weren't restricted. They could short or buy stocks. If you're limiting buying of GameStop, that means all you can do is sell. And if all you can do is sell, it's going to go down which benefits the hedge funds. So, There are concerns about market manipulation there. So now I I want to go to the 29th, which I I believe that was last Friday. Yes. So Robinhood begins accepting some buying and selling. You know, there's some interesting Twitter videos of this, Ewan. Like there are some people trying to sell GameStop or buy it and they'll let you buy one share or five shares or something. So it really was quite restricted. You you could transact, but in very small numbers uh, for most people. But, you know, Robinhood really wanted to come and try and explain itself again. So it posted another blog, another announcement on the 29th. You know, this one is quite technical. It does go into these clearinghouse deposit requirements. So again, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but a clearinghouse sits between basically two sides of a trade and it helps manage the risk. So, you know, if, if one side goes bankrupt and, and can't come up with the money to buy or, 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 or sell, you know, the clearinghouse can take on that risk and make sure the whole market doesn't collapse. And that's really what was happening here is the clearinghouse told Robinhood, like, look, you've got all of these people buying this stock, which is incredibly volatile, incredibly high priced, and it's incredibly high risk. And so because it's high risk, you need to have more collateral in the clearinghouse. Like you need to give us bigger deposits to cover this in case something goes wrong. So that is true that Robinhood was kind of squeezed on this point. Um, but so were a lot of other brokers uh, as well. It's sort of how, how how the system works. Anyway, I think Robinhood didn't do a good job of explaining that on the 28th, the announcement I just read. But here's what they said on the 29th, which is the Friday. This is the end of the uh, announcement after it sort of explained this clearinghouse sort of deposit and collateral system. So it's referring to to the restrictions here. Quote, It was not because we wanted to stop people from buying these stocks. We did this because the required amount we had to deposit with the clearinghouse was so large, with individual volatile securities accounting for hundreds of millions of dollars in deposit requirements, that we had to take steps to limit buying in those volatile securities to ensure we could comfortably meet our requirements. Our goal is to enable purchasing for all securities on our platform. This is a dynamic, volatile market, and we have and may continue to take action to make sure we meet our requirements as a broker so we can continue to serve our customers for the long term. Then it wrote in bold, rest assured, our position remains firm. We stand with our customers, and we will continue to provide you with the resources and tools you need to become a confident, informed Investor, do you think that mitigates wow. the fallout, Ewan? What do you think of how Robinhood handled it? There's no right answer. Well,
2: well no, because I mean, really, what they're saying is, I, I mean, there you can sort of dress it up any way you want, but effectively, what they're saying is, sorry, we had to shut it down because we were going to go broke. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's effectively what they're saying, and that has nothing to do with meeting a particular regulatory framework or meeting the needs um, and best interests of your clients, that's a matter of financial survival and the bottom line of your company. So really, I mean, again, you tell me, Cam, you're the PR guy, but it strikes me that they should have been more forthcoming and plain spoken in terms of what their vested interest was in shutting things down, rather than suggesting it was in the best interest of their customers, which clearly
1: it wasn't. Exactly. So, First, the fallout of this. I mean, there has already been a class action lawsuit launched. Politicians have already said that they will uh, haul Robinhood to the Capitol for a hearing. You know, including AOC in New York and Ted Cruz. So it's it's very bipartisan the support for this. The SEC says it's going to investigate Robinhood's actions. And you know, the the company Robinhood raised another billion dollars on Thursday and Friday uh, as well from its existing investors to sort of keep the the company running. So, like, what what went wrong here? And you're you're right, Ewan. This to me is a cataclysmic problem for Robinhood that could destroy the business. It's that big because they lost trust. the The fundamental cornerstone piece of any business and doing doing business with customers is trust, and and it's gone. And I think it's even more important when you're dealing with financial markets because it's it's very consequential. It's it's your money. Maybe it's your savings. It's important to people. And, you know, when you restrict them from doing something like this in the way that they did, it just destroys that, that, that brand trust and reliability. And, um, you know, it's a big deal and I can understand why, why, you know, people are so outraged about it. So, so that's the, that's the first one. And I don't know how they're going to overcome that. I don't think it can be in the short term. Uh, the second point you and um, poor communications, I mean, they, they absolutely bungled this from the start, you know, that that statement on the 28th where they talked about sort of the risk management and how they've got to do this for the for the clearinghouse. You're right. It, it's actually Robinhood sort of not managing its business. Well, <laughs> that's the ultimate conclusion here. And you're right. They didn't do it in the interest of their customers. Actually, it hurt their customers what they did. And the fact that they tried to kind of twist that around and make it seem like something that it wasn't. Again, not advisable, and that also hurts trust as well. Now it looks like they're kind of being shifty about it, um, so that doesn't doesn't work. Also, it lacked empathy. Uh, you know, it didn't explain in that first announcement clearly why this was happening. It was vague, um, things like that. And then the third one, and I think also, uh, you know, one of the biggest ones is that you know at, at the end of the day, these retail investors. Feel like the big players are manipulating the market that they've got power that the little players don't have that they've got influence that the retail investors don't have, like we mentioned, and this to them was Robinhood siding with those players. This was Robinhood supporting them or picking them, you know, as as being more important. And, and again, that's that goes to the core of why Robinhood started, who they're trying to draw into the app as regular people, and so. People thought Robinhood stood with them; that it was an app for retail investors, and this this really hurt that.
2: Uh, you know, I I saw a brief article the other day, Cam, on wealth simple and how they have seen an absolute explosion of the number of users using their product. Um, do we have any sense as to just what the impact has been on Robinhood's? user base has there been mass attrition from the platform because i mean they're in a really competitive market space
1: yeah so they were among the first to have no commission trades and that was the big draw into Robinhood. but there are a lot of other services doing this now you know one of them is called weeble which is really big you know i'm on there as well to test it out and there's another one i'm just trying to find the the name of it yeah it's called public so I, they're very similar to to Robin Hood, but you know what? They handled it much better. I mean, they ran into the same the same problem because if your clearinghouse does, you know, restrict trades or increase your collateral, in some ways there's nothing you can do about that. And you know, public is a is a smaller app, and it tweeted right away that trades were being restricted at the clearinghouse level, and it wasn't their decision. And in fact, they they tweeted that they disagree with this decision of their clearinghouse, and that they are going to. Basically, deal with this right away. Um, and so they were kind of praised for the way that they were open and honest and provided really timely updates um, on what was happening. And so, you know, it, it's not we're not we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, it's it's a crisis. Robin Hood did find itself in, in, a, in a difficult situation, but it could have handled that difficult situation a lot better. I always say, you know, with PR, it, it can't solve your problems. It's not going to uh relieve you of negative coverage or of criticism, but it can reduce it. It can help you preserve parts of your brand or it can help you, you know, you know, maybe recover faster, things like that. And Robinhood really sort of botched those things. But I do want to say, you and know, you said how many people have left the platform. I don't know. I, I imagine that there's quite a few. However, there were 120,000 new downloads of Robinhood from the U.S., app store us ios app store so just on one phone platform on january 27th alone so i think even if they've lost customers and i'm sure that they have it looks like a lot of others might be interested in what's going on and checking out the app uh, because that's much higher than than what they would normally get in terms of of, of downloads,
2: right? Sort of going back to that fundamental PR principle, which is any press is good press, right?
1: Yeah, kind of. So I think and you know the question you and is what what should Robinhood do now? Business Insider has a nice little write up about this, but but I think it's pretty clear. Number one, I mean, it really has to rebuild that trust. Uh, it's it's really hard for a brand to do that. Like once you've broken that trust, it's um it's really hard to recover. And I think that's like when you when you when you talk about Communications. I mean, when you're doing it day to day, the one thing that you're trying to preserve is that trust, that um, reliability. So it's really important to try and you know make sure that you avoid these kinds of kinds of problems. So yes, they have to rebuild uh, trust. They have to emphasize to users that it's still on their side and explain how it's on their side um, and how it's going to sort of repair its image and um, its trustworthiness with its customers and a big one you want is to fully explain the rationale for these decisions i mean when you look at the facts of the case, there are spots in there where Robin hood did have to make a tough call. And I do think people generally are fair. I think they understand when even a company is in a tough situation like that. And I do think that there is some forgiveness there, but, but the company has to be upfront and honest about what it, what it's facing also. And I think these are things that would only be a start. I mean, it's just a start to try and rebuild this because it's going to be a very long road.
0: Wait a minute. check this out whoa hey
3: check this out no no wait wait oh, check it out check it out i want you to
0: check this out on the pr in law podcast
1: all right ewan what do you have to share alcohol cam all right alcohol. that's good uh, that's,
2: <laughs> but not
0: I'm not in. in
1: the
2: fun sort of festive oh. festive way that you might be thinking unfortunately how's your advent calendar
1: How's your beer advent? How's your beer advent calendar coming along? <laughs> I, I,
2: I'm, al- I'm almost finished.
1: I'm almost finished. I think I'm up to uh, about day. I think I'm at
2: day twenty or day twenty-one now. So I'm. Oh, I'm, I'm still not. Still not quite there. Still going to finish it in February. It, I mean, mm. It's been. It's been a great pleasure um, working my way through it, and I. I think I'll. I, I'm going to sign up again uh, next year for sure. Nice. Um, so this this cam, is uh, it was a Globe and Mail article, and the title is Why Alcohol is the New Cigarette. Mm. So think about that for a moment. And it, it sort of examines a series of studies uh, that, you know, firstly suggests that our, our awareness and understanding of the harmful effects of alcohol is actually comparable to what we knew about the harmful effects of cigarettes in the 1950s. Um and I don't know if you remember this cam when you, when you were when you were young. I know uh, we 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 sort of grew up in the same the same spot. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to some of the overnight radio shows, you know, stuff like The Shadow from the from the from the 50s, these old sort of quaint radio programs. The things that I always found really amazing about them was they would have these sort of commercial breaks and typically the commercial break was advertising for a cigarette and it would be, you know, a physician endorsing a particular brand of cigarette as actually being healthy and, and good for you,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, which, of course, we now know is just completely insane. Um, but this article kind of suggests that we're, we're taking similar positions vis a vis alcohol consumption. And it suggests that the idea that moderate drinking is somehow good for you is, in fact, a myth. And that the, the best quantity of alcohol for you to consume is, in fact, none. None at all, Cam. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, and it talks about, it references a number of studies. And it talks about issues, um, you know, people who consume alcohol as a stress reliever. But that the research has actually found that, you know, alcohol consumption worsens depression and anxiety. Um, It references a study from July of 2019, and this was the the Canadian Medical Association Journal. It published a large scale study analyzing survey data from nearly 10,400 participants from Hong Kong. I don't know if you were involved, Cam. If you, <laughs> no, if you signed up. <laughs> no, um, and the United States, uh, which found that the healthiest amount of alcohol consumption for your m- mental well being is, in fact, none at all. Um, It Mm. also talks about a study that the uh, Canadian Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs um, did last year uh, that said that 50% of alcohol-related cancer deaths happened to people who reported drinking within the weekly guidelines, you know, these moderate drinkers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is part of the problem that the article talks about, first of all, is that what we consider moderate drinking from one country to the next is markedly different. Mm -hmm. And what our governments recommend as moderate or healthy quote unquote levels of drinking. um, It, it's, it varies significantly from country to country. So for example, in Spain, they say that, you know what, if you want to have 21 alcoholic beverages a week as a man, Hey, nothing wrong with that. Whereas in, in Canada, um, you're looking at 15 for men and 10 for women, and in the Netherlands, you're looking at five for men and five for women. So, I mean, we're talking about this massive no massive consensus on in this. terms of mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of what's reasonable and what's not. So, um, it's a crazy article. It 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 goes into um, issues around. Uh, breast cancer and how the correlation between consumption levels of alcohol
1: for women and breast cancer, cancer, which are okay, really terrifying. So where can they find this? Is it where, 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 where's this article published?
2: It's in the Globe and Mail.
1: Okay, okay, we will put the the link in the in the show notes for that one. I've got two quick ones just to 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 share, and, and one of them uh, I actually checked out last night. It's written by somebody who I, I sort of know. She worked for the Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong for a number of years, and I've you know conversed with her at events and things like that, but don't know her well. Um, and it's called Chinese culture doesn't belong to the Chinese government. Uh, it's written by To Ping Chen, and it really looks at sort of how China is co-opting, uh, sorry, the Communist Party, the government in China is co-opting uh, the country's culture and food and history, uh, you know, for its own purposes. And it's kind of sad to see that happen, but it's uh, it's definitely a trend that is that is increasing. And then the second one, Yuan, and this one shocked shocked me. This will scare you. It has a Canadian tie to it. It's a long feature in the New York Times called A Vast Web of Vengeance. And the subtitle is Outrageous Lies Destroyed Guy Babcock's Online Reputation. When he went hunting for the source, what he discovered was worse than he could have imagined. And it is true, and it is about sort of people attacking others on the internet, and this guy coming home one day and his father giving him a call and saying... You know, there's some negative stuff on the internet about you and he went online and found that his his name and face had been plastered all over the place with the words pedophile and rapist and things like this across his his name and it was all over the internet and the challenge of how to deal with this unfortunately there's not much people can do um, but the person behind this is actually a woman in Canada and so uh, there were some targets in Canada as well, the UK, Canada, and the US. So it's it's kind of a horrifying read, to be honest. Um, and it's definitely something I think we're going to have to learn how to deal with because this sort of thing wasn't possible before, where sort of a disgruntled person could take action this way. Um, but now it can be very damaging to, to somebody, even costing them you know, their job, their family, even their life in some cases. So uh, two, two to check out.
2: I mean, do you know, are you aware of any companies who sort of focus exclusively on scrubbing internet content? I mean, it strikes me that this should be an area of
1: expertise that so that has to exist. It's very hard to scrub the internet of content. What, what companies do is they will launch new websites. So if there's negative content about somebody or a company, it can get buried in the search results. So this, this is something that's been happening for a few years. Like if there was something negative about a, an athlete, maybe they launch a, a new Instagram page and a new Facebook page and a new website for something and a new website for sponsors and a new website for something else. And if you SEO, search engine, optimization optimize all of those, maybe they can turn up turn up uh, in Google on that first page of results and you won't get to the second page that's the way that it's dealt with most of the time because to scrub things it does mean going to the source and saying take this down and oftentimes they'll say no you you can't make me do that Um, and and that's where we run into some problems that I think this article looks at
2: right okay
1: well that sounds just
2: absolutely terrifying kind
1: of ominous yeah uh, anything else, Ewan? Before we wrap up, forty-one. No, that's it. That's it. Yeah, lots of stuff this week. It's good. So, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for joining us again, everybody. Don't miss a show. Subscribe in your podcast app of choice, or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels, or on social media, of course: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, and our newsletter. I've got to get that newsletter out. Prlawpodcast.club. Yeah. So for you and this is Cam. Light it up.
0: This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W
2: Podcast. Thanks for your support.